Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Rob Carpatty, Senior Advisor at the Blended Capital Group in Toronto, Canada. Rob is a pragmatic finance leader with 30-plus years of multinational experience, specializing in governance and business process transformation leadership. Over the last several years, he has focused on responsible mining and more recently on artisanal mining in particular. He is actively framing paradigm-altering approaches on formalization in the artisanal mining sector that target the combination of enhanced dignity and productivity for miners in conjunction with broadened development opportunities for regions where ASM takes place. Thanks, Rob, for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk about artisanal mining. So I'd like to start off the conversation by learning a little bit more about your journey into the mining sector and key issues revolved in artisanal and small-scale mining. How did your business management and financial work lead you to this important issue? So my background, I've been a finance leader in the multinational world for about 30 years. Worked in the DuPont company in local Canadian and in global leadership roles of different kinds. Retired four or five years back. And what retirement meant was having the opportunity to align my focus with my beliefs. So responsible mining became the first part of that because at the end of the day, there are huge companies with potentially at-risk communities and social engagement is really important for uh, dignity. And there's also a finance aspect that spoke to my background around investors and around how does social engagement accrue additional win-win results. From there, I gradually sharpened my focus to artisanal mining. And the gist is I learned more and dived in. There are 45 million artisanal miners worldwide. And they're in over 80 countries. They're at the bottom of economic totem poles for the most part. Opportunities for dignity are stunning. Opportunities for productivity are stunning. So I felt that it's the place to be in terms of mixing out impact. That's win-win for mining companies, for artisanal miners, and for communities. Some of the essential challenges in the subsector is they lack financing because these are small individuals for the most part. So no access to money makes it hard to organize, hard to equip, hard to develop best practices. So one thing is, what does an uh, investment marketplace look like? Another thing they're lacking is rights. So how can there be a universal recognition around rights that's table stakes for rolling out an investment marketplace and for gradually formalizing the sector based on the voices of miners in their own localized conditions? No, I think it's fascinating how we intergrain our previous fields because I always find it interesting that many people that are working in this space come from something else previously and being able to use those skill sets because all these issues that we're going to be facing in the future, especially with the energy transition and these kind of human aspects around the energy transition, there's so many important fields that are going to be contributing to this and be able to bring that expertise and diversity in there from those backgrounds are really important when solving these problems. So bringing back to your background, 
one of your key focus areas is stakeholder and social engagement, which of course is a central component in sustainable development. And so we often hear about this and its connection to the social license to operate. But what does it mean to be successful as social and stakeholder engagement? What does this look like when it's done properly? And how can we turn potential conflict and differences into opportunities for collaboration in the shared future that we all want? So driving change in any industry is about people at the end of the day. It's about building bridges. It's about building understanding. It's about aligning on directions. Leadership's also about people for the same reason. You can force people to follow you some of the time, but that's very different from an energy point of view of collaborating with people so they want to follow you all of the time. So social engagement starts with the notion of respecting people, listening to people, understanding their realities, and figuring out what win-win looks like around that. In the world of mining, you have a tendency that there are large companies and there are small remote communities in underdeveloped uh, places. So it's cross-cultural. From a power dynamic point of view, it's uneven. From an opportunity point of view, though, companies make or break conflict-free projects. So the act of listening, the act of gathering data, and the act of flexibly talking through what are win-win solutions is what engagement's all about, and it's what leads to trust and social license over the course of time. In artisanal mining, when we think about formalization, same premise, even more so. Formalization isn't something that's imposed. Formalization is developed collaboratively, which means it's listening to the miners, talking to the miners, and based on the reality at a given country, at a given location within a country, talking through and implementing what makes sense in order to drive towards stable business relationships. But whether or not it's large mining, artisanal mining, or any other industry for that matter, it's all about listening and having the flexibility to give and take. So how can we best forecast and measure this stakeholder and social engagement? You know, engagement is essential, but in practice, how do companies and governments understand the true impact of their programs and actions in these local communities? Is that just getting the project up and going, or are these more deeper issues that need to be measured when we talk about successful engagement? Well, yes, yes, and yes. There are different levels of measures, but at a basic level, finance folks in the business, or finance folks in the government for that matter, develop business cases. It's what they do every day. If we do this, what's going to change and what's the value of of changing it? That's called theory of change. And they build these models that spit out return on investment that based on a certain upfront investment and time frame, here's what's going to come back. When we start talking about external communities or the environment, along with return on investment, there's the notion of social return. So an investment into collaboration with community development with the community infrastructure in the community, what does it bring back in terms of development and value for the community? So social return and return on investment are two sides of a single coin. And that's a basic reality, because if you think about a theory of change where there's an engagement with the community, it comes back with lower risks of PR issues, lower risk of conflict issues, lower risk of legal issues for the company, and greater opportunity for collaboration, which is all about productivity at the end of the day. So finance folks know how to build business cases. They know how to define theories of change because they do it every day. But when it starts to go into the world of externalities where there's benefits outside of the company, 
it's thought of a little bit differently a lot of the time because a lot of finance leaders and financial analysts lived in a world where it's only impacts on the company that matter. But the exact same discipline around mapping out and measuring what are potential impacts and flow of value applies. So there's a mindset shift that's probably not totally there, but it's moving quickly around incorporating this social return notion into business cases. And once you get there, it's the identical set of principles that financial analysts live and breathe every day. What's material? What's conservative? What do sensitivities look like? What do different value ranges look like? And so on. So to me, this is fully measurable, but we're not there yet. And getting there means finance folks talking to social teams and to mining site leaders in order to wrap around multiple perspectives into how our value flow is going to be shifted based on engaging towards joint value. Yeah, and it always fascinates me because, you know, different fields are going to have different perspectives on what that value looks like and what that measurement looks like. And, and, it, and it scales, right? I mean, we have it all the way from artisanal issues to local domestic issues. Like even in my own state, we had a situation where there was a mining company. There was two mining companies. One was a prospective mine. The other one had already been established. And for years, there was not really interest in joining the industry association because they didn't see much value. But as this prospective mine became more political, the local communities ended up wanting to shut down the already established mine. And so I think that in today's world, with everything being interconnected, we also have to recognize in mining companies that knowing what's going on around that maybe doesn't impact them directly, but impacts the mining sphere as a whole is very relevant to, you know, this engagement and social and measuring these social perceptions around mining. And I always tell people, don't just look at your little bubble. You also have to think outside of that bubble because that could come back and impact you, especially a government and a political level. Well, one of the things that's clear today, and it's come back in surveys where mining executives say that social risk is the biggest risk facing the industry, is communities make or break projects. So it's one thing talking about return on investment and all of that. It's another thing saying, unless trust is built, unless social license is earned, there is no operation at the end of the day because the community is not going to sign off. Land concessions may or may not happen. And even if they do happen, conflict's going to get in the way. And conflict, whether or not you're in the DRC or whether you're in a province in Canada or a state in the U.S., at the end of the day, is the fastest way of destroying value. So there really is a mindset today that's evolved that this isn't optional. Companies that get good at it, meaning that they're good at listening and have a culture and flexible engagement, are going to have an advantage because they're going to have faster, more productive, lower conflict risk projects. So there are a lot of challenges facing the energy transition from technical knowledge gaps or decline geopolitics and environmental and social issues. You know, global politics and economics aside, the people involved in and around the mining industry are essential when we're looking at that shared vision of a future. So what are some of the biggest challenges you see with human security and this energy transition? Will we be able to achieve these lofty goals at a rate which meets our security needs while also promoting and preserving human security globally? And you can think of this from the artisanal work that you do as well? Well, it's a fantastic question, Tom. And at a basic level, go, going beyond mining, our stakeholders align. Do we know what we're transitioning to? Are investors lined up? 
are have we managed to deal with the sources of opposition that get in the way, smoke room lobbying and all of that? And do we know what the dynamics is to move from today's point to a point by 2050 or whenever it is that we're fully transitioned? Maybe, maybe not. Is geopolitics going to be a dynamic in this? Well, we know it is. So the U.S.-China rivalry, that's not going away anytime soon. That's going to impact mining. That's going to impact a whole lot of things when it comes to energy transition, along with everything else this century. It's probably going to be a basic theme that we all live with. So thinking about mining, it's just not obvious that the industry is going to be able to deliver the tonnage that's needed to uh, support transition from minerals point of view. So what's great is there's now critical mineral strategies in the EU, in the UK, in Canada, in the US. So we've recognized the problem, but we need to work on it. But what does it look like? Well, number one, there's going to need to be as much copper mined in the next 50 years as we've mined in the last 5,000 years. Well, we're going to need to mine five times as much lithium as we've been mining. Well, there are all sorts of places with the largest reserves where there's a variety of risks and social challenges. So DRC with cobalt, Peru, Chile, Argentina, lithium, copper, all of that over there. So there's social risk, geopolitics, and there's investors who worry at the end of the day because mining tends to be a cyclical industry. There are some really good levers towards lowering risk. One is Let's be real. We're talking about social engagement, large companies working with communities. The better the industry gets at that, the faster transition is going to happen. Because at the end of the day, whether it's land rights, whether it's productivity, the ability to stand up projects and make them run productively is going to be as good as the dialogue with communities. So that's understood. The UN 2030 Mining Commission is working on standards right now, is working on aligning investors on those standards. Fantastically important work. Because at the end of the day, being crystal clear that we're engaging the right way and that it's transparently understood by investors and other stakeholders, massively important to bring the money to the table. Another piece of the puzzle is blended finance. It's one thing to say, we're going to need to invest a whole lot of money to increase the capacity in the industry. This morning, I read a paper that said we're going to need $1.7 trillion between now and 2050 to grow mining. So it's a lot of money. Where's it going to come from? Well, some of it's going to come from traditional mining investors. But when you think about blended finance, is some of it going to come from the government? Well, yeah, public financing. So the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is a fantastic example where there's going to be state support and collaboration with the mining industry to drive growth. Is it also going to come from the Teslas, GMs, and other end-user OEMs of the world? Absolutely, because they know that there needs to be stable supply and there needs to be supply that manages cost in order to get there. So there's going to be a variety of blended finance approaches. We'll see what it looks like over time. But without that, there's just no way that we're going to find $1.7 trillion. The last part of the puzzle is artisanal mining. So there's 45 million artisanal miners worldwide. And one of the big areas where work happens is critical minerals. So think copper, cobalt, manganese, lithium, rare earths, 
And these folks tend to mine individually. They tend to mine without access to equipment or best practices, and they're at the bottom of uh, value chains. So what can happen if there's access to investment that enables formalization in ways that make sense? Well, it's more dignity for them because it gives them the chance to organize more sustainable development for communities in the region, which makes sense because it shares value, but also more productivity that's going to be absolutely 100% critical for transition. So if there's a quarter of a million miners in the DRC who artisanally mine uh, cobalt, let's say, what if their productivity doubles? What if it triples, quadruples, goes up by some multiple anyway? Well, that's going to go a long way towards helping with cobalt availability that's needed for tomorrow's clean energy. So the notion of a strategic focus on ASM formalization, which is another aspect of the UN Mining 2030 Investor Commission, is going to be a really smart, really win-win approach towards enabling the capacity that we need. So it's going to be a hard problem, but what's great, when you think about all the things that I just mentioned, there's multiple levers that are going to help us get there over the course of time. So going off those points, what are some of the challenges of the energy transition with indigenous communities? And then knowing that many of these large deposits fall on indigenous land, especially here in the U.S., how can we maneuver this space while providing benefits to these communities and ensuring an equitable outcome for stewards of the land? So when we talk about community engagement, a starting point around that is indigenous engagement. 54% of critical mineral projects worldwide are on indigenous lands, 54%. So growth and value and productivity are going to happen as effectively as indigenous engagement happens. So are we consistently good at it? Well, maybe, maybe not. There's a lot of history that's been said. It needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be part of discussions when it comes to projects. And history from 50 or 150 years ago isn't necessarily today's reality, but it is today's mindset. When you think about aligning uh, values, beliefs, and solutions over the course of time. So there's work to do in making sure history is acknowledged. There's work to do in making sure that communities are fully respected, which is UN DRIP, so free prior informed consent, but it's also beyond that. It's the notion of full trust, full social license. So one of the specific challenges with indigenous engagement and community engagement in general is there's a natural tension between engagement and a desire for speed. There's a reserve somewhere folks want to fire up a project quickly. Okay, that makes sense. makes business sense. You want to get the mineral out of the ground. However, if that reserves on indigenous land or right beside a community, you can't circumvent the speed of trust. You can't circumvent the critical path towards building trust and earning social license. So that natural tension is a real risk that needs to be managed and mitigated as projects go forward and as growth in the overall industry goes forward because once trust is lost, it's harder to regain. An example of that that's in my home province, Ontario in Canada, there's a region in the far north called the Ring of Fire. And there's a whole lot of critical minerals there, and they happen to be on indigenous land. And there's been this discussion around, let's go, let's fire up a whole lot of mining, which is smart business, and hopefully it'll happen over time. 
but how quickly can we do that? And can we circumvent some of the engagement work? So right away, red flags, wrong answer, and indigenous communities have raised up concerns that if you do that, there will be consequences in relationships and in conflict. And of course there will be, because you can't really circumvent the speed of trust, which is critical to this. And the same principle is true when we're thinking about artisanal mining formalization, because it's one thing to have a large mine on indigenous land or beside indigenous land, but there might be artisanal miners on indigenous land or beside indigenous land where the reserve happens to be. So again, when you think about formalization, values, belief, culture, history, all of that needs to be acknowledged. So the notion of a dialogue that respects values, beliefs, history, and builds trust so that engagement solutions and formalization solutions can be put in place that makes sense to everyone is fundamentally critical to success in conflict-free ways. I really liked your framing there of speed of trust. I think that's such a great kind of catchphrase there. I think it's so important because what is the speed of trust and which communities, how do they build trust and how does their culture take time to handle that trust? And I think we're so fast to be pushing and pushing and pushing for this energy transition that we're forgetting that we have to build that trust. That trust takes time. And as someone who grew up in the Appalachians in Southwest Virginia, you know, many communities around here are very we're very you know, pessimistic in some regards of this energy transition, especially because of how trust was lost in many of these coal communities for so long. And so that speed of trust is such a very profound thing to think about. And it's something that maybe is different all across the world, country to country, community to community. It's, it's something that's really important in this conversation. Oh, absolutely. There isn't a single speed. The speed given the specific context the specific culture, the specific history. And it's the same in any business. You try to drive a transformation initiative in a large company or a transformation in any large industry. At the end of the day, you hit different stakeholders and the process to gain understanding followed by buy-in can't be short-circuited. Otherwise, change fails. And here, Given the notion of traditional cultures, indigenous cultures, small underdeveloped communities, a lot of the time with large mining companies trying to circumvent its pure recipe for uh, conflict in the long run. The fantastic part, though, is when the speed of trust is respected and there's the discipline to have the conversations and to build one brick at a time, the dialogue. What ends up happening is social licenses are in which means collaboration happens. So productivity afterwards can be a whole lot more valuable for everyone and a whole lot more productive in terms of the tonnage that goes out the door because you're not worried about shutdowns. You're thinking about how to amp up volume in a way that makes sense. That wraps up part one of my conversation with Rob. Join us for part two as we discuss artisanal and small-scale mining formalization and some of the human capacity and geopolitical challenges facing the global mineral supply chain. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast, please reach out. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.